hello and welcome to splatter chatter where october never dies the home of all things horror haunted and halloween my name is mr craigers and i'm one of the hosts and i'm miss mama and i am your other host she sure is and tonight we are bringing to you episode 116 in which we will be discussing the 1984 uh holiday cult classic night of the comet yes i'm excited Uh, yeah definitely i um a true cult classic like that term gets thrown around a lot these days um but like this i feel like is one of the ogs that like people underground loved this movie for a long time before it got more attention well and because it was as we'll come to 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 discuss like it was intended to be like a like drive-in theater like like that type of movie like it was very much supposed to be and like that was you know before you know they didn't make it saying like wow i hope one day it's going to be a cult classic but it was like the type of film where it's like this is meant to to do a very specific thing at a very specific time for no budget. Yeah. And you know, it's it's just it there was an interesting um sort of retrospective we'll see later during the legacy legacy what is a legacy section from uh, one of the cast members about the sort of staying power of of this one but Yeah, it was like the right combination of everything whereas like nowadays like filmmakers are setting out to make cult classics mm-hmm. like that's not how it works you don't get to right make- you have to somebody has to find a dusty film print under a box and say <laughs> what's this and then all of a sudden you've got midnight showings and yeah you know it's it's got to be word of mouth it can't be in your pitch that it's you're making a cult classic you're making a future cult classic <laughs> yeah so um yeah but before we get all comedy and christmasy let's do um a horror headlines read watch listen check-in um what have you been up to anything you want to highlight honestly not a ton because after october i feel like it all just sort of i need to like decompress from the and plus i get a little bit like depressed that it's not halloween anymore in october um I have been trying to finish Fall of the House of Usher, but Netflix finally got me for password sharing. So uh, yeah. Gonna have to figure out a fix there. Um, I got I got I got caught a while ago and then refused to get my own out of spite and mm-hmm. caved for Fall of the House of Usher. Yeah. Well, I've heard that if it gets you on the TV you can still go on the computer, like for whatever reason, it's less likely to get you there. Interesting. Pro tip. So yeah. I, I think I'm going to try that to at least finish Fall the House of Usher. I went on trying to freaking watch May, December, and they were like, you, you're you not part of the household. Who are you? <laughs> and you're like, I'm Natalie Portman. <laughs> and I'm Natalie Portman's wig. <laughs> exactly. Um, so anyway, working on, on through that, it's going to be a little bit longer thanks to, to Netflix. Um, but I did read um, the book that I, uh, Miss Colleen got me for birthday uh, that she gave to me at the end of October, um, mm-hmm. as she is wont to do, um, which was uh, Sisters of the Lost Nation. 
Mm, that, oh, yeah, that's right. Um, by, <laughs> by Nick Medina. <clears throat> by Schumer, uh, Nick Medina uh, debut. That is a... Um, it's interesting because the horror elements, I feel, are more quiet horror and suspense. Um, but there is, like, some very clear, like, supernatural spooky stuff. But it's... Um, it's more subtle until until points where he doesn't want it to be subtle anymore um and kind sure. of more thriller-esque like i hate throwing that term around for for horror stuff because it gets you know psychological thriller is like the the buzz term for well-reviewed yeah. horror film basically but um okay <laughs> but yeah basically it's um this teenager who lives in louisiana on a a fictional it's a fictional tribe um in louisiana um uh indigenous tribe and as with most indigenous tribes there's a sort of um epidemic of women going missing being disappeared that sort of thing um and her sister becomes one of them and she thinks it's connected to the people who own the casino and there seems to be some weird organized crime stuff there and she's also got this like reoccurring phobia from childhood of the this um myth of a of a creepy rolling head like it, it it's some sort of like myth in in this it's based on real um like folklore from other tribes but this the tribe in the book is fictional but it's like this 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 head of like a that was like disembodied from like some woman in a folktale that rolls around and if it gets you you know like it's very creepy yeah. <laughs> yeah, it feels like something you'd read in um, uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Like uh, that part of it. Yeah, like the Green Ribbon story. Yeah. You exactly. know? So, um, but it was good. It was very interesting. I actually just lent it out to a friend. Um, but, nice. um, yeah, yep. that was my, my main thing. That's been on my list for a minute. And that was a, that was a good pitch there. Okay. Um... I've been doing um yeah I also I feel like I I pumped the brakes a little in November you know because it, it's so much horror in October and then it's kind of like oh no it's over mm-hmm. you know that month always seems to go so fast um but I did I listened to some finished listening to some horror podcasts I had been listening to um Tower 4 and the Manawak Caves. Um, for those that like audio dramas, I recommend both. Um, Follow the House of Usher. Yeah, I maybe talked about that last time. I can't remember. Um, uh, oh, and then um, I saw two the two big holiday slashers this year. Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and It's a Wonderful Knife. <laughs> Nice. Um, how, do we, how do we feel? Uh, both, both fine. Um, you know, Thanksgiving, kind of probably no secret at this point for a lot of people, like, it takes a more, like, early 2000s slasher tone than, like... Well, it is, it's Eli Roth, right? Yeah, and, you know, it is the, the fulfillment of the trailer, the promised trailer from Grindhouse, but it's not quite in that same style that the trailer was in mm-hmm. 
but it's fine and it's fun. Um, and then it's a wonderful knife, still fun, but I had a little less fun with it. Um, I I had trouble with the with some of the writing and the dialogue. Taking me out of it, but the the cast is game and they're having fun. Justin Long is there. <laughs> I have heard good things about him in um, the Goosebumps series. Oh yeah, people people seem to be thinking that's pretty cute. The Goosebumps series. Yeah, I haven't watched it yet, and I probably should. I have a friend who watched it who she thought it was great, um, and she thought he in particular did a very good job. Nice. Oh. Nice. A recommendation there. A little rec rec. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And um, I know it's holiday horror time, you know, doing a little bit of that. I watched Krampus the other night. Krampus. I have to I watch that. I, I should have watched it, you know, because I'm, I'm assuming you watched it for Krampus Knocked. I did. Yeah, I watched it on the 5th. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, that and Black Christmas is always... Yeah. Fun one. Always get to that. Um, yeah, yeah. Might do, you know, like Anna and the Apocalypse or Christmas mm. Evil or something. I'm gonna Rare at least people. listen to the soundtrack. Always, <laughs> always. So yeah. Well, let's move then into our discussion of this holiday horror um, that we've chosen for this episode. Which, of course, as we mentioned at the top of the show, is Night of the Comet. Night of the Comet. Um, <clears throat> let's do a little bit of, um, well, before background, I guess, our opening question per mm-hmm. usual. Um, when did you first see this film and what were your impressions? I first watched this film, it would be like right after college. Like I want to say it was like the summer after college. Um because I remember it being summer, like, it was one of those, like, blazing hot, like, I'm inside, and I will continue to be inside until I remain. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but it was right after college, because I had, like, found it, essentially, by way of, like, Buffy, because um, this is, uh, this was, as we'll discuss a tiny bit uh, later on, like, a huge, you know, influence on that so I watched it because I was like oh cool like what what is this um and I think the first time I watched it I didn't I was like you know I didn't fully appreciate like what you know it's going for yeah what it's going for and like a couple watches later it's like actually this is like very intelligent humor and like very you know very well done and and you know, having watched it again here, listening to the commentary um, with um, Tom Everhart, uh, director and writer, it was very, it's 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 definitely like a movie that is so much better than it should be for its budget, for the type of production it had around it, for like what it was intended to be, I think. Yeah, and I think that's part of what, has aided its cult status, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as people like sort of I feel like there's two kinds of cult films, like ones that are like so ridiculous and bad that they come they become beloved for that. Right. 
and like the ones that are like no this is like an underrated gem like right like um obviously the big one for the the former is like the room like right. just so bad that you have to keep watching it yeah and there's films like you know night of the comet or even like the babysitter i feel like um yeah. before it blew up um i feel like the <laughs> that first like six months it was out it was like is this the greatest horror film anyone has ever <laughs> produced and it's sitting on netflix but yeah um so for me this was one i remember my dad putting it on at one point and I was in maybe like middle school and catching most, but not all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like kind of a similar thing. I just think I was either too young or not like invested enough in, you know, films like that at the time to care. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think I like wandered away or wandered in and out. Um, and so watching it for this episode is like my first true like, sit down pay attention pay attention start to finish watch um and like i i definitely remembered bits and pieces of it and it was kind of that thing where it's just like okay yeah everything i've like heard and read about this movie over the years like makes sense Mm -hmm. i get why this movie does have the following that it does yeah nice yeah so where did it all begin? Um, whose idea was it? You mentioned Tom Everhart is writer and director. Like, how did this come about for him? So uh, in 1983, <clears throat> there was this film that was released called uh, Valley Girl, <laughs> which was a, I don't know, have you ever seen it? Yeah. Okay, I have not seen it. Um, interesting cast situation um just you know when i was perusing it but um for those of you who don't know it's a it's a it's an 80s rom-com teen rom-com that's like a sort of valley girl version of romeo and juliet essentially and apparently this thing did gangbusters yeah it was a big deal <laughs> like people were super fucking into this movie um and uh tom everhart for whatever reason thought to himself what if we did he described it as valley girl at the end of the world that's where his mind went you know that thing (laughs) you know so he that was sort of his first thought and then he was um at the time working at like pbs just you know doing i think he was just like sort of directing pbs specials and that sort of thing and he asked a bunch of the uh teenage and like young adult actresses like hey like what how would you feel about if you know the world ended if you woke up tomorrow and nobody was around like what would you do and you know they the answers they gave were like they think of it as like a fun adventure they go to the mall they do this stuff but also find dating really tough um <laughs> so he started to work off of that um and then a little bit of um 1954 target earth which I think is a, a post-apocalyptic movie. And then um, a 1959 episode of Twilight Zone called Where Is Everybody? Where somebody like wakes up and... Yeah. Where is everybody? Um, and started to... When, I believe that's the Twilight Zone episode with the famous... With the glasses. Maybe. Yeah. I didn't dig too much into it, but it's entirely possible. I think. Um, 
And then he sort of developed the main character of Reggie from this image of uh, Ginger Rogers, famous Golden Age actress. Um, And then obviously, like, the Valley Girl persona. And he started to put um, this idea together. Um, One interesting thing that came up in the writing, or one interesting thing that came up later that um, he talked about was, I guess there's a sort of debate as to whether this is a zombie movie or not. <clears throat> and to be fair, there's not a ton of like traditional zombie sort of like right because some of them are like pretty sentient and yeah and and stuff. But he was saying that he personally does not consider it a zombie movie because the zombies were like a major major afterthought. Like mm-hmm. they didn't come into the script until very late because he just realized he needed some sort of um like physical obstacle for the characters. Um, so he was like, I don't know zombies um and went with it um so he he writes it he starts pitching it around um orion's the first company that's interested in it and they like the script but they were like this is going to be way too expensive um because they were estimating it to be 11 or 12 million um which is hilarious that is so funny given what actually happened yeah (laughs) So uh, Atlantic Releasing Company, which is the company that did Valley Girl, um, offered to buy the script because they were into the idea. Um, But Everhart insisted on directing and there was like a little bit of back and forth and he held out for long enough and they were finally like, just fuck it, fine, you can direct it. Uh, Because they really wanted to capitalize on Valley Girl. And then also at this time, I think um, like drive-ins were kind of coming back into style, at least for like Mm -hmm. teen audiences. So they kind of wanted something that they could show for that. And the budget they gave him was seven hundred thousand dollars. Not even, not even a million, let alone twelve. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So they, he, he got his. This was his first feature. Um, there's some funny stuff we can talk about in production uh, that did pop up because of that, um, by way of the way the producers handled stuff sometimes. But um, did talk to us a little bit about the the casting. Yeah, so um, as is somewhat typical when you're casting a movie like this, um, they did, it looks like they did like some paired castings, right, to see how people played off of each other. Um, uh, specifically, there were chemistry tests for the female actresses auditioning for the roles of Reggie and Sam. And in um, I guess initially in this round of casting, um, Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney, who would end up playing um, Reggie and Sam, they were paired off with different partners, like different actresses. Um, and then they were cast. Yeah. It was, like, and Yeah. They seem to have been surprised that they were, that they yeah, were cast because like, they never auditioned together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And with, that is kind of a funny outcome of all of this. Um, so then it's kind of like, well, why didn't you just audition everybody separately then? No. Because, but kind of funny. Um, the, the legend herself, Heather Loggenkamp was in the running to play Sam, the -hmm. younger sister. Um, she. What a a big 1984 that would have been for her. It would have been huge. I, I would be curious 
I wonder if like it would have had to be a one or the other thing, like if they were filmed at the same time because they were released at the same time. Yeah, I feel like it must have been because she was their first choice and there was nothing about like why she wasn't. Because even uh, Kelly Maroney was like surprised when they called and were like, hey, you got the part because she assumed, you know, they were going to pass on her. Um, so I'm guessing it was a, they offered it and she was like, I, I'm going to do this instead. Um, but yeah, interesting. But yeah, it could have been, could have been a banner year for, for Heather. I mean, it's still, it's still, it's still it. it could have been a banner year. <laughs> banner year. Um, yeah, so Kelly Maroney, um, huge 80s name, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually cast as Sam. She had asked to read for Reggie, but the casting director was like, no. Literally, like, she was like, I asked, and he was like, no. And she was like, can I, well, can I? And was like, no. No. No, you may not. Killer. Um, that just really envisioned her as Sam, I guess. Uh, and then Robert Beltran, um, who actually has top billing in the movie, even though his character is not the, like, main character, as it were. Um, he was the most well-known actor in the film at the time. Um, he had played, uh, Raul, Raul and Eating Raul, um, which I believe he was in with Mary Warrenong. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he, he originally declined the role of Hector, um, because it was too similar to the role of Raul, this, like, um, very rakish, stereotypical Latino character with like a, you know, criminal background or like a hint of something dangerous about him. Um, and he was like, eh, I don't necessarily basically want to be typecast. Um, uh, and I guess he was able to persuade like Everhart and the producers, like Hector's actually like more of like this everyman character, you know, facing the end of the world. And so they're like, yeah, we, we actually see that, I guess. And so they altered the character. And um, at that point he accepted the role. And that's kind of cool to think about. Um, and oh yeah, this, yeah. He actually suggested Mary Warnow for the role of Audrey because they did work together on their previous film. And I believe they went on to work on like three more films together Mm -hmm. um, throughout the eighties. So I guess they got along well on set. And uh, Sharon Farrell, who plays Doris, um, Sam and Reggie's wicked stepmother, uh, was actually a a real life mother of Chance Boyer, who plays um, Brian, the young boy at the, underground bunker you know testing facility situation with with doris i think of that guy who did those videos that were like singing the facebook comments she's a dirty wispy stealing bitch (laughs) doris doris (laughs) yep that's rudiman's doris um yeah so that's you know we'll talk a little bit more about um the cast later when we get to roll call but once that once everybody was assembled what was the actual production like how did filming go so i'm not sure for how long filming went um but it did begin in los angeles on christmas day 
Um, Insane because like notoriously like Hollywood shuts down during the holidays. Well, and they did this to get shots of the city without people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because they were like, we don't have the budget to like digitally remove people or like get permits to block off streets. Um, So they They started filming on Christmas Day uh, for that reason. Um, And they'd continue to use like different um, sort of like moves like that. Like they would film sometimes at like 5 a.m. on a Sunday. Um, uh, Times when they did have to film during regular business days, they basically would just wait until there was a break in traffic and then quickly try to get shots of different corners and different streets or they would they were able to sort of like hold up traffic very briefly um you know with like somebody in the crosswalk i assume just being like you know don't hit me um so pretty much everything you see like everything in the movie is like you know and it's it's really crazy how they were able to like really get that effect of like feeling totally empty and deserted just by, you know, getting these shots at the right angles. Like, I feel like it's just very classic, like, almost like filmmaker magic, where it's just like, yeah. like, we had this this um, uh, exercise we did in my film class in high school called, um, like, The Endless Stairwell or something like that, where you would film somebody going down a stairwell in such a way repeatedly that it just looked like they were doing it forever and forever and forever. And it was just like a trick of, you know, the yeah. angle that you used. Um, and that just feels very, you know, cause nowadays you'd like, you digitally remove stuff. You'd have a CGI city, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff. Whereas here it's like, we've got $700. We got to make this work. We're going to make it work. Um, yeah. It's like, it's like guerrilla filmmaking kind of. Mm-hmm. And that's you know? how a lot of them described that they were just like, they were like, Oh, we got to go. We got to go now. <laughs> yeah, got to hustle. You got to get creative. Um, but the result is really sort of gorgeous. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's incredible. Um, and yeah, like all they would do is they'd do that and then just like kill the, the, you know, the, um, background noise and yeah, it worked. Um, and the department store shoots happened at night because that was like the only time that they could get access to them. So that's why all the mall scenes and that sort of thing happen after dark. Um, one of the more prominent filming locations, uh, it, it, in the beginning of the film is the El Rey Theater in Los Angeles, which has served as a movie theater and live music venue since 1936. So, yeah, it's a pretty famous spot. Pretty cool. Um, this this I, I found kind of funny. Uh, the producers Wayne Crawford and Andrew Lane of Atlantic did not trust Eberhardt because he was a first-time director, so they put together virtually all the crew themselves. Like, they hired and placed everyone. So, like, this included even Eberhardt's first assistant director. And at the time, he just thought, yeah, like, that's what happens. And then later, like, was told, like, no, like, normally you <laughs> pick like, your your own assistant directors and stuff. And he was like, oh. <laughs> but they were very hands-on and, and present because they just, they they weren't super into him directing and I think maybe the the gorilla nature of the the filming probably worried him a little bit yeah but I'm taking advantage of a 
you know, a relatively like fresh director, right? You know. Exactly. They're like, yeah, whatever. You just show up. We'll take care of the rest. And it's, <laughs> you know, they've got all their own people, um, essentially. But um, you know, they Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney, speaking of the gorilla film set, um, both came from soap opera backgrounds. Um, I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. one was on One Life to Live, and I forget what the other one was on. But it was one of them. Well, many. Yeah. Um, but they they both have talked about how in soap operas, it's filmed almost like it's a play. Like, right. if you fuck up, like, you've, like, fucked up the whole thing, and they have to reset everything and start again because of the way that they're filmed. And so they're, like, they were very used to, like, you know, having to to do things a certain way. And they actually, like, because they were so, like... Um, like regimented in the way that they had to to act in soap operas it um kind of helped at least Everhart felt that it like really like helped make the film successful because they also had a tight production where they were just like yeah like we don't have a ton of money for like extra film so you know like like too many takes yeah like you know here we go like just we're going to do it um in part so for that reason like uh, like Catherine Mary Stewart does a lot of her own stunts virtually all of them except for the like long shots of her on the motorcycle which is like a stunt driver but um like she even she did some of the close-up motorcycle stuff like she's on a motorcycle being like pulled by a truck or something um but it was just okay. because they were like we just gotta we gotta keep going um so that was interesting um, and they both love Tom Everhart. They meant, talked about him as a sort of father figure. Um, and, you know, they were adamant about keeping his humor in the film because there was a period where the studio considered shifting to just making it like a serious straight horror film. Mm. Um, but they were like really into the script and like what he was, they were picking up what he was putting down. Um, likewise, Beltran has also pra- praised Everhart. Um and, you know, he has said especially, like, it being his first time working with actors. Because um, mm. that's the other thing people forget about directors, I feel like, is it's like, yeah, you're you're doing the the artistic vision, but you're also, like, a people manager. And yeah. you're, you're working with actors and, and trying to get the best performances out of them. So, um, you know, he gave him kudos and he's lobbied Eberhardt to write a sequel. Um, oh. So far, I think not successfully but we'll see (laughs) um so beltran was very adamant about um maintaining the integrity of the changes he asked for to the character especially with the two producers who as we mentioned were like a little hands-on and you know a little opinionated uh, on set and one of the more prominent um disagreements i guess you would say i don't think it was like a blow up or anything but um when Hector goes back to see if his family is still alive and he finds that they're they're gone, um, the producers had envisioned it as like a huge breakdown, like he would have a huge like emotional breakdown. And obviously the the version that plays in the movie is him just kind of having a subtle acceptance. He goes to take down like the Christmas decorations and, and different stuff. And, um, you know, he was very adamant about it being a very like he he had a lot of things like that throughout the film where he just felt very strongly about different choices and stuck to it. Um, 
One he did lose because he said he was, quote, too tired to fight it, was wearing the Santa suit. He did not want to do that, but. <laughs> it, it's good for, like, a chuckle. Yeah. But I could, I could see kind of with the approach he was taking, why he would want to yeah. push back on that. Yeah, so. But, yeah. That's, that's some of the main beats in the. The filming stuff. There's not a ton out there about the filming, and I imagine it did not go on for super long. I wouldn't think so. I mean, given the budget and the you know the style of the filmmaking, I'm sure it it wasn't particularly well, a particularly long shoot. Um, soundtrack is pretty contemporary, um, you know, for the time. There's a swath of of 80s artists and names on there there's some pop music there's some rock music um of course there's a little bit of christmas music and some instrumental stuff um let's see who's on there uh tom pace john townsend revolver diana dewitt skip adams stallion chris farron you can hear all of them um at various points throughout the movie Special effects were handled by David B. Miller, who was riding high after just working on uh, Michael Jackson's Thriller music video. Um, he was the makeup effects designer for the film. Uh, it was his first time being in charge of makeup on a film. So one has to assume Thriller really did a lot of good for his career yeah um and miller is i I feel like a decently big name in makeup um he you know was the makeup designer or a makeup artist on a number of other um big 80s and 90s films um including uh parallel release to this film nightmare on elm street Mm -hmm. um night of the creeps two years later Hello, Mary Lou, prom night too. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, new Nightmare back in back in the, the Nightmare franchise. Batman and Robin. I think some other stuff in there. Um, for Night of the Comet, he only had about six weeks to create all the prosthetics and the makeup and accomplished most of that on his own. Um, I mean, I think even, you know in the end credits for this film they're not particularly long like this no. film will have a huge crew involved no. so whatever assistance he did had i'm sure it was pretty minimal um the red tint that um we see you know throughout the film primarily in the sky and with the lighting um was done with graduated red filters over the camera lens um, which are typically used when you're doing a sunrise or a sunset shot. But here, obviously, they needed that um, in a different context, and they needed mm-hmm. it more often. And I think it's one of the most beautiful parts of the film. Yeah. Like, it's done so well, um, the way they use red and film red um, and the sky. It's just, it's awesome. Yeah. And the other sort of, like, companion piece to that effect Effect is of course the dust the red dust that is seen throughout the film 
um, which is the sort of remains of the humans um, and other living beings that are exposed to the comet. Um, I, the scientists say at one point it's like calcium dust. Yeah. Um, uh, but of course, practically, um, as one might guess, they use brick dust for all of those piles and effects and whatnot. Yeah. So, um, so what do you think? Should we should we walk through the f- the plot of the film a little bit? Um, sure. What uh, sure. what is what what actually goes on in Night of the Comet? Yeah. So, um, the opening little sort of narration prologue, tiny little prologue, whatever you want to call it, um, talks about how. Uh, the Earth is passing through this sort of like it's like a Halley's comet situation, but like way more rare. It's like you know, 65 million year, you know, every 65 million years, the Earth goes near this comet. Everyone's yes. like super hyped to have like these comet parties and like shit like that. But there's like a, a group of scientists who don't you know trust it, and we see them go into a bunker, and um, you know that's kind of like the the opening premise, and then we meet uh, Regina Reggie Belmont, um, who is a teenager who works at a movie theater in, um, like, in and around L.A. Um, or, obviously, I don't know if it's, I guess it is supposed to be the L.A. theater, because they show it outside, so. Yeah, one assumes. Yeah. Um, and she's, you know, working the, you know, the night of the comet, um, as it were. <laughs> um she, you know, we immediately get a sense of her. She's playing a video game in the lobby of the um, movie theater. And she's, like, insistent on filling the scoreboard, like, all herself. Like, she wants all the high scores. Um, and she sees somebody on there, uh, DMK, and the sixth highest score. And she's like, what the fuck? So she eventually um, knocks this, these initials off. Um, but um, she hangs out. At the theater, her, she's kind of seeing the projectionist, Larry. <laughs> um, Larry. And they, you know, kind of fooling around. Um, you know, he's, like, doing some stuff on the side of, like, sort of, like, 1980s version of, like, burning, like, movies yeah. and stuff. Bootlegging. Yeah, so yeah. she's like, yeah, whatever, like, sure. And she helps him with that sometimes. Um, and they end up in the projection booth. Importantly, they end up in the projection booth uh, as the comet passes. Um, getting a little freaky. That part's less important, but they're in the right. projection booth. Which the is steel line, line projection booth. <laughs> yeah. Which is important. Um, meanwhile, we've got Reggie's sister. And what's she up to? Yeah. So parallel to this, we're also meeting Sam, Reggie's younger sister. Um, and she's back at home with their stepmother, Doris. Yeah. And Doris is throwing a comet watch party with all of her, like, suburban friends. Um, but, you know, Doris is also, like, maybe, like, flirting and, like, openly sort of being, like, um, intimate with a man who is not... Reggie and Doris, or Reggie and Sam's father, mm-hmm. who is away um, on some sort of military assignment, um, 
And we understand that Reggie and Sam don't get along with Doris and it's, there's tension. There's a confrontation between Doris and Sam where they both slap each other. Um, and then Doris gets like the real last punch in, like literally like, punches Tam, um, her, her 16 year old stepchild. Um, and so Sam storms off and she's in a huff and she's upset. And as you do when you're upset, you go to sleep in a shed. Yeah, I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> her her reasoning for being inside of a the the necessary container is um a little flimsier, but yeah, because the shed is also made of steel. Mm-hmm. Um which, yeah, is important. And so neither sister witnesses the passing of the comet. And we, the viewer, don't either. Um, we see, most, like, some flashing in the sky and that sort of we thing. See, we see some flashing. We don't actually see, like, any sort of, like, celestial body. We also don't see any, like, immediate aftermath or, like, vaporization or mm-hmm. whatever actually happens. Um, the screen sort of like whites out and then it's the next morning and we start piecing together what has happened. And this is probably like a budgetary reason. Right. But I found it very effective. And I think it works that like we're removed from the actual sort of like moment of destruction or extinction. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so the next morning, um, as Reggie and Larry wake up, um, Larry is upset that, you know, this guy that he was supposed to meet still hasn't shown up. And he was like, I'm going to go find him or whatever. Um, and he, like, opens the door and, like, immediately is, like, killed by... <laughs> we had to get um, rid of Larry real quick. He was... Yeah. He, he served a purpose and it's over now. <laughs> and out to go. Yeah, he's hammered to death um, by this. I mean, I guess we refer to them as zombies. Yeah. Um, we find out later they're not like dead. They're not reanimated corpses or whatever. But something is very clearly wrong, though, with this like person thing. And so Larry's out of the picture and Reggie's. Um, you know, putzing around. She's doing this, that, and the other. She's trying to beat the DMK score again. And then she's like, I'm tired of waiting. What the hell is going on? Where's Larry? She pokes her head outside the theater and sees nobody around. Notices the sky is red, which she writes off as smog. (laughs) Um, You know. And there are piles of clothes everywhere. And red dust by those piles of clothes to which she also i guess is just like this is so inconvenient <laughs> and it's like litter <laughs> and it's just like tongue-in-cheek part of the film right the humor of it all like it doesn't really sort of like click with her until um she's attacked by the same hammer wielding zombie mm-hmm. um that she's able to fend off 
she grabs a Larry's motorcycle and she's like, what the hell is going on? And she books it home to see if her sister is okay. Um, and she is, Sam is there. Sam's getting ready for pep squad practice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and like fills Reggie in on like what happened with their stepmom. And she's like, Oh my God, look at how messy the house is from the party. I'm not cleaning this. <laughs> like, well, gotta go. Of course, I haven't heard from everybody, but da 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 da. And Reggie's like, listen, bitch. Like, <laughs> I don't know that there's anywhere to go. And she like slowly starts to convince her sister or like show her sister that something is very, very wrong. Um, where is everybody? She mentions, I love that she's like, it's Saturday morning. Where are the kids? Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no kids outside playing on their street. Um, and Sam like doesn't want to accept that at first. She thinks it's some sort of prank. Um, but then they eventually come to terms that something bonkers has happened. They're pretty sure it had to do with the comet. And they also pieced together that neither of them were affected because they each spent the night contained within steel. Which is a, whatever, a huge jump, but that's fine. Sure, sure. <laughs> I think it's like a, Reggie brings up something with Larry. They talk about Superman, right? Yeah. And like... The lead line. The, the lead line, yeah. yeah. And Larry thinks it's steel that Superman can't see through. And Reggie's like, no, it's he fucking can't. lead, Larry. He's the man of steel. Like, yeah, it's lead that. Is That's why Larry got killed by the zombie immediately. Right. Because Larry doesn't know what's going on. And Reggie's up on her comics. And and so they, they piece all of that together. And good for them. They also um, decide that they're going to head down to um, the local radio station. Because the broadcast is still on. Um. And they're like, well, that must mean someone is there. So they head down to the station. But what happens when they get there? So they head to the station because they're like, oh, my God, there's a there's a disc jockey on air. And they find out it's a pre-recorded show. Um, nobody's there. Um, but they do find um, another living being in the form of <laughs> Hector Gomez, um, who uh, has also survived by... Spending the night in a steel-contained domicile. It was a truck. Um, <laughs> so, you know, they basically, they're hanging at the, the radio station. Sam's, like, fucking around with a microphone. Um, and their broadcast, you know, is now heard by um, this group of scientists in the bunker that we saw at the beginning, which is fun. Um you know, and we sort of learn a little bit more about what's what's going on. Um, that you know, the zombies are people who were little a little less exposed to the comet, so not enough to be like vaporized, but they turn into like these sort of zombies before they're eventually gonna like turn into dust themselves. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Oh uh, yeah, I'm also like, what is that? How is one partially exposed? Yeah, like, I'm like, did they have one foot outside? Like, you know, like, <laughs> what? I don't know. I mean, like, my assumption is maybe, like, they were indoors somewhere, but not in a steel-lined right. thing. Or, like, yeah, or like there was steel involved, but not 
completely yeah. taste. Yeah. <laughs> it was not medically sealed. Yeah. Um, so regardless, um, at this point, Hector wants to go check on his family, realizing that like something, you know, you know, this is obviously very wrong. Um, yeah. He goes back. The house is empty. Like, he finds, obviously, they're gone. Nobody's there. He kind of, as we discussed, is, like, a, a muted, very, like... And, you know, I feel like it was the right choice. Like, a powerful, just sort of, like, muted reaction. Because you get the feeling that he knew that already. Um, yeah. And by, you know, once he got there and confirmed it, it was like, yeah. You know. Um, so, while he's doing that. Reggie and Sam really start to fuck around. Um, they're, like, playing with guns that they wrote to find like they have these uzis and like there's this thing about how their dad like i guess taught them to like kind of use guns and shoot because he's in the military but i feel like you shouldn't i mean i hope you did it safely and not just you know like imagining just like oh yeah my dad's in the military he taught me how to shoot and it's like was it sanctioned like yeah i so one of them mentions like going to the range yeah so i think it was like a formal like <laughs> formal a formal education but um so they do have some like wherewithal when it comes to like survivalist shit um shit. because of that but they go to the mall they're fucking around in the mall um like after hours um you know trying on clothes and they like make jokes about like oh put it on the charge card and, and stuff like that um because obviously everyone's fucking dead um <laughs> it's like a classic 80s montage right yeah of them putzing around the mall and doing this and that like it's so odd yeah. um but the mall they're not alone in the mall um no there are some like sort of like hoodlum half zombie ish type boys um who have taken over the mall um and obviously you know because it's like basically the purge now like when it you know, kidnap these girls essentially and, you know, I'm sure do all sorts of dastardly things. Um, so there's, you know, a little bit of a firefight. They lose the guns at one point and, and different stuff, but eventually um, they're kind of like rescued slash other kidnapped by the scientists um, who have yeah. now located them from their radio broadcast um, to bring them back to their... Um, facility in the desert um uh, and it's for a pretty specific reason um we meet uh audrey white at this point um who's um the one of the scientists who who works there who's like kind of cynical and stuff um and basically they were hiding in their little bunker to you know avoid the comet um but we learn well everyone's here that um the ventilation shaft or some shit was open yeah they talk they talk they they're like we forgot to close like the vents yeah and so they realized that they were a little bit exposed to the comet so they've been stealing um survivors to like basically do like blood transfusions to like take their like survivor juices or whatever (laughs) it's interesting science um but um they believe that sam um like got exposed because she's got a rash and she's actually like gonna die um and then they sort of fake euthanize her um 
and Audrey uh, is like gonna help them escape, basically. Yeah, um, she's because she, yeah, because she's like, what the fuck ever? Like, I don't even care anymore. I've already been exposed. Um, Hector also <clears throat> is shows up at this time. There's children that they have locked in little pens. <laughs> like it's a whole it's a whole situation that happens um yeah but how does it where are we how's how are we resolving this so so yeah so audrey goes through her whole thing she takes down the scientists at the mall doesn't euthanize sam reggie's taken back to the bunker Audrey, like, tells Hector sort of, like, the truth, all this truth, right, about the partial exposure, da-da-da. Then she kills herself mm-hmm. uh, with the actual euthanizing agent. And so we're like, well, what is Hector and Sam going to do? And then Reggie, while she's at the bunker, is also slowly starting to, like, put the puzzle together about what's really going on with the scientists. And, you know, when she sees she sees the kids about to be, like, not euthanized because they're healthy, but essentially like they're like sucking like in a coma. life juices out of them. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're on like life support and stuff. And right. I guess it's like supposed to be a blood transfusion of some sort is their goal. Yeah. So like they still need these like survivors to be alive, but they don't want them to be like conscious and resistant. So yeah, it's like a brain dead life support situation. They need the blood. Um and Reggie is essentially like, I don't think so. Um, (laughs) um, And so she, um, she rescues the kids. She she somehow gets a gun. I don't remember how. I, yeah. Yeah, I feel like this movie has two distinct parts. Yeah. Like, once you go to the base, or once the scientists become involved, it becomes a slightly different movie. It does kind of become a slightly different movie. But she rescues the kids at gunpoint, and then we also see, like, Hector shows up at the base, and he's, like, kind of does this, like, vague disguise, like, I'm here to deliver, look, I have another survivor, and it's Sam, and she's in the trunk, but she's also alive. And so they like take down some scientists and some guards and they get into the base and then they show up and Reggie almost shoots Sam and then they laugh about it. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, okay, now we're all here and it's all chill. And we're going to, we're going to bury the hatchet because Sam and Reggie have been like clashing over Hector a little bit. Cause yeah. Cause he's the like one guy left in the, she has like some line about how like, like, oh, yeah, my older sister who always steals my guys and now she's stealing the last guy on Earth or whatever. Like, there's some sort of, yeah. like, clever line she has. And they're, they're, like, it's this funny little thing that, like, primarily Sam is concerned about, um, but also Reggie to an extent. Sam, I like when Sam takes that chance to, like, mess with her in the mall sequence when she's like, he might be gay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then what do we do? Um, and so now this sort of like strange family unit um, forms during the escape from the base, right? Like Reggie and Hector, and then like Sam is the quirky aunt, and these two like children just sort of get like adopted. Um, Brian and 
Sarah, I think. Sarah? Yeah. Um, and they flee. They get to, they get back up to the truck. Uh, Hector rigs um, like a an explosion, essentially, that takes out um, the rest of the scientists who at this point have started to like zombify because of their exposure. And they're all killed. And um, they drive away. And most people would think like, and then that's it. They drive off. But there's a little bit more to the film. Um, there's almost like an epilogue situation where it's, I don't know if it's the next, like, I don't know how much time later this is, but. It's it, like it, it's some time, like it's a day or a couple days, maybe. Yeah, I, don't know. It's I like, think it's like a couple days to a week later. Yeah. We see that um, the world as it is, is like back to its normal appearance because there's been a lot of rain. And so the rain has washed away the clothes, the dust, um, as, and the sky has returned to its like normal shade of blue. Obviously there's still nobody else around and alive, but like there's Reggie and Hector and the kids and they're like taking pictures. Um, and then they're gonna cross the street, but they're waiting for the walk sign. And Sam is basically like, what the hell? Like, you don't even do that anymore. Like, it's just us. And there's this bit where, you know, Reggie's like, no, we don't walk until we're allowed. You're not going to get hit by a car. And Sam's like, you're not going to get hit by a fucking car. And so she starts to cross the road and almost gets hit by a car. <laughs> um, driven by this guy, another young man. And um, Sam's, like, totally smitten with him and hops in his car. And she's like, I'm going to go out with this guy. And she's like, we'll be back by 10 or whatever it is. Um, and Sam drives off with this new person. And we see that um, the driver of this car has the license plate DMK. There you go. Yeah. And that's how I close the film. Yeah. <laughs> so we've touched a little bit on both cast and characters, but we'll do our formal roll call now. And we can add in anything that we might want to say about either performances or the characters uh, themselves. So first up, we have... Um, Robert Belgian, who gets a starring credit in the opening as Hector Gomez. Yeah. I liked him. I mean, I, it was interesting watching it, like, with his, um, knowing all that backstory about how, like, it feels like maybe the character that we see in the film is, like, a real sort of, like, creation of his. Um, yeah. So it's it was very interesting, because I had actually watched that interview before rewatching. Um, so it was interesting to sort of see it in that light. Yeah, I like having that knowledge and thinking about that lens now. Um, yeah, I like Hector. I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like the changes were probably good. I feel like he's, it's still sort of like, yeah, this is what I expect from this character. Mm -hmm. I think the most interesting sequence with him is when he does go back to his house, mm -hmm. which we touched on before. And then we have Catherine Mary Stewart as Regina Reggie Belmont. Great. Yeah. <laughs> great. 
um, good, like, um, prototypical, like, survivor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's the one who's, like, taking things a bit more seriously as the older sister and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kelly Maroney as Samantha Sam Belmont. I feel like the first time I watched this movie, I found Sam, like, so fucking annoying. And then, like, once I started to appreciate what the movie was doing, I actually really have come to enjoy Kelly Maroney in, in this role. Yeah. Being very fun. I think in, like, the first half of the movie, I was really irritated with Sam. And mm-hmm. then, like, when they're at the mall, I feel like things started to switch for me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I'm a Sam fan. Yeah. Um, and she, yeah, she's, like, the comic relief, right? In yeah. uh, many ways. She gets a lot of good, like, zingers and one-liners. Um, then we have Sharon Farrell as uh, Doris Belmont, stepmother to Reggie and Sam. Only really in that one scene, but this is memorable. Yeah, it is. Because <laughs> it is a punch. Yeah, it's so... And it's funny because he didn't... Uh, Tom Everhart didn't really have a ton to say about it in the commentary. He was just like, yep, there's the punch. It really got gets the audience because it comes out of left field. And he didn't say, like, this is why I did it. This is what I was <laughs> going... It was just it was like, yep, and now she punches That <laughs> It's just that. I did see something, I guess, that um, Kelly Maroney, like, they had done a couple takes, and she was, like, she didn't obviously want to waste more time and more film because she knew it was limited. So she told Sharon Farrell, she's, like, just hit me for real. Yeah. Um, to, you know, get the get the needed reaction. Um, Mary Warnoff as Audrey White, the sort of, like, disillusioned scientist um who intervenes to save sam i feel like this and i'm sure it happened before this film because i don't you know i'm by no means a uh a knowledgeable person on film history and that sort of thing but i feel like this is also a little bit of this sort of like prototype of that type of character um that you see in science fiction films where you have that um Especially, like, a female scientist who's very... Like, I was thinking about her in relation to, like... I don't know if you ever saw... Ended up seeing Annihilation. Oh. Yeah, I feel... I was thinking, like, thinking about her, like... She feels, like, cut from the same cloth of, like, 